This episode of Punk Rock HR is sponsored by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head on over to thestarconspiracy.com. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome back to Punk Rock HR. My guest today is Tessa West. She's an associate professor of psychology at NYU and the author of the new book, Jerks at Work. Tessa's research focuses on awkward interactions at work and she's channeled all of her research, all of her experience in academia into this book, Jerks at Work, to help you avoid interactions with terrible people, but more importantly, to help you avoid becoming a terrible person yourself. And in this book, Jerks at Work, she gives resources on how to identify people, how to identify these attributes in yourself, and how to move forward. So if you work with difficult people, and who doesn't, I hope you sit back and enjoy this conversation with Tessa West on this week's Punk Rock HR. Hey, Tessa, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Sure, it's my pleasure. You know, I'm just enamored with the work that you do in your new book, and we're going to talk about all of that. But before we do that, why don't you tell us who you are and what you're all about? Sure. So I am a social psychology professor at New York University, and I study the ways that people communicate with each other and often when they're feeling really uncomfortable and stressed out. So everything from how you go from a really tough interaction with your boss, you take that stress with you to interacting with coworkers, to how you negotiate with someone who's an expert and you feel like a novice, to even how you ask for a raise or promotion. So if it's a tough situation at work, I do research on it. I love it. Amazing. Why do you do what you do? I don't know. I, I've had a lot of really weird jobs over the years. I used to sell men's shoes at Nordstrom's and I just loved watching the dynamics between people. I loved watching people trying to power grab and people trying to deal with tough situations. And I just think it's really fascinating from a scientific perspective to bring people in and actually put them in these real life situations and see how they unfold. So you've written a new book about jerks at work. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Yeah. So I think most of us deal with difficult people at work. It's definitely in the air of the these days to have toxicity and not know how to handle it or what to do about it. I wrote this book because what I found is that most of us get a lot of technical training at work and we even learn about HR and we kind of learn about the really egregious stuff, but we don't learn how to handle everyday low-level conflict. You know, the stuff that makes going to work stressful and hard, but often doesn't rise to the level of getting someone fired or even making you quit your job. And I felt like it could be useful for people to get a little bit of training in this area and I try to have a little bit of humor around it because I think anything tough is made easier if it's funny. <laughs> and, you know, that's really what my motivation was, just to give people some skills and tools to empower them in the workplace. So can you give us an example of a scenario where someone's a jerk, but it's not enough to get fired? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the most difficult jerks I've dealt with is the 
ASAP kick downer. So this is that person who kind of tortures everyone who's at the same level as them or beneath them. You know, they're mean, they're sabotage but the boss really likes them. And these types of behaviors often make us feel really terrible about ourselves. So for example, I worked with someone who would say little things like, I would love to have said hi to Tessa this morning, but you know what? She's late again. That's too bad. It would have been nice to have coffee with her. Or she's not the best shoe salesperson on the floor. She doesn't really know what she's doing. You should come work with me instead. So small acts of sabotage, and you see this everywhere from hair salons to academia to even in the C-suite. But these are not the kinds of things that make other people care, especially management. And so people really struggle with these low-level types of things, and they don't know how to talk about it with people who hold power in a way to get them to invest in the problem. You know, I'm struck by how common these daily interactions are with people who are jerks, right? This is just humanity. And yet so few of us have any training to deal with it. And yet we all deal with the same thing. It's so commonplace. And, you know, I feel like it's a universal problem that no one to this day is really effectively addressed. Why aren't school systems addressing this or universities or management training? Why does this not exist just as part of humanity? I think it's a great question. I think so many of us are outcome focused. We're performance focused. So in the school system, it's how do you get good grades? Or if it's collaboration, it's how do you work together to build the thing or to be more creative? In the workplace, it's very much what is the financial bottom line? Insofar as these things affect turnover, they affect how committed people are to work. Management, leaders, they'll start to care a little bit. But overall, it's a really hard concept to grasp. And one of the reasons why is because it's hard to measure. It's hard to gain traction on. Much harder than measuring things like performance, engagement even. And those are hard to measure, by the way. Yeah. Anytime it becomes fuzzy, a construct that's fuzzy, it's difficult, it's intangible. People in the workplace just kind of throw their arms up and say, we can't measure it. Therefore, we can't do anything about it. We can't track it. We can't fix it. And that tends to be the attitude around this stuff. You know, I also think about how when there's someone in our life who's going through this situation, all they do is talk about it. And the last thing we want to do is hear about it. And yet when we're going through it, all we do is talk about it. And the last thing other people want to do is listen. So can you talk to me a little bit about that dynamic? I mean, it's just exhausting, isn't it? Yeah, it's really exhausting. I did an interview once on energy vampires, these people who kind of suck you dry at work. And we do know that experiencing this makes people very self-involved, ourselves included. And what we want to do is reach out to those closest to us at work, our friends, our confidants, and just complain about it whenever it's convenient for us. But what that does is causes stress contagion at work. It actually makes other people more stressed out. It makes it harder for them to focus. And then there's this kind of negative effect that cascades through the workplace. But when we're the ones experiencing that, it's very hard for us to take a step back and think, should I go approach my friend Lori right now? Or she looks like she's maybe has a deadline. Maybe I should not do that. And I think we, most of us have a perspective taking gap. Even the most well-intentioned among us tend to not spontaneously think about how our actions will be perceived through the lens of another person or whether it's convenient for them to deal with us kind of unloading on them right now. And I think that's a natural consequence of experiencing negative emotion at work. You think about yourself and what it will take for you to get that emotion down, to get your productivity back. You don't think about the person on the receiving end of that emotion. Oh yeah, so true. I myself have been in that situation where I've dealt with, you know, jerks at work and all I do is complain and you can almost see people repel from you. You know, like take a step <laughs> they back, hear so. your shoes walking down the hall and then they slowly turn the light off and you can see it because it's an open concept office. They hide from you. Okay, just listen to me, please. I would love that. Well, you know, you gave a really great example of someone who kisses up or kicks down. Like if I work with someone like that, what do I do? How do I manage that person? 
person? How do I make myself feel better about being around them? Yeah, I think it's really tough. I think we have an instinct to try to use this lesson we learned in second or third grade, which is stand up to the bully, tell them, leave me alone, go find another victim. And that actually doesn't work very well for people like that because they're very conniving. They'll find a way to up their game. The best thing that you can actually do is to kind of stop and think about who you really need on your side. Who could actually help you convince your boss to care? And it's often not the people that you like to complain to when you feel badly. It's people who have some kind of knowledge around this person in the workplace, have some institutional memory. They've been there for a while. They not only know how widespread the problem is with this individual, but they also know how to get your boss to care. And kind of one of my favorite tactics isn't to just complain to the boss or the boss's boss. It's to go up and over. It's to find someone who's worked with your boss for a while. It could be in a parallel position. It could be in HR. If they're in management, talk to them like what makes them care? What will make them listen to me? Get some advice and bring that advice with you. The other thing you have to do is not focus on your feelings. And this is really, really hard. Most of us are taught that if we are good at articulating how somebody makes us feel at work, then people in power will care. But they often just get bored and roll their eyes. And instead, you have to focus on the specific behavior and how it's disruptive to not only you, but to other people at work, focusing on actions, not on feelings. The more specific, the more you can back it up, the better. Feelings tend to, you know, vary from person to person and they're really hard to corroborate. Everyone has their own feelings. And so it's very easy to be dismissed when you do that. You know, you gave a really great example of one jerk, but you have seven in your book, right? So give us another jerk at work. Like who else are we working with? I think the credit stealer is someone that most people have experienced. And when you think of a credit stealer, you probably think if if you haven't experienced this yet, well, I'm going to see this person coming. They're going to, you know, have a lot of bravado. They're going to talk a lot. Not so. They're usually your boss. (laughs) You know, it's someone in middle management who's trying to prove themselves so that they can get promoted. And we tend to be really surprised and hurt by credit stealing because it happens to us by someone who is close to us. And I think that can be really heartbreaking for people to kind of go through that feeling of our relationship wasn't what I thought it was. And it can even be really hard to detect that's even happening to you because a credit stealing often happens when you're not in the room, when your boss is bragging about all of their productivity and these kinds of things. So I think, you know, dealing with some of these jerks is really having to reevaluate the relationships you thought you had with these people and realizing that maybe they're not as great as you thought they were. You know, I love that example of credit stealing because when it's your boss, they often think that your accomplishments are their accomplishments. So it's not even like a jerk move. It's just like an institutional way we see power in a lot of these corporations. And I don't know how you fight that because if someone in a position of authority has that POV that your success is their success, what do you do except learn to feel okay about it, knowing that that's your culture, right? Yeah, I think this sort of hierarchy is a really terrible way in which credit granting can get shifted around. In fact, there's a great example. My husband is a professor and when he first wrote his dissertation, everyone attributed the work to his advisor who is this guy, Will Cunningham. Will Cunningham's work is so great. But once Jay finally made it, then they shifted to him. And so this funny thing can happen that we can kind of re-get credit for things as we climb the ladder at work. And so I think it's really critical for people to realize at the top that this process happens, that credit granting is associated with status and power, not necessarily associated with work put in. And to have these very frank conversations at the very beginning of a project of how you're going to grant credit and how you're going to take the we out of group projects. And so in the work 
workplace, we talk a lot about the benefit of having, you know, this kind of group identity. We did this together all the time. Let's just, we're a big we. But for when it comes to credit granting, it can be very dangerous because you can get lost in that we, especially if you're low in status or low in power. And so one thing I've noticed for successful groups and organizations is they'll do things like say, Tessa came up with the problem, Lori had the solution, and John came up with this innovative way of combining X, Y, and Z to do the following. And it's by giving individuals credit for the different pieces, you actually then combine into a we that everyone is on board with versus we found X and then we did Y when everybody knows we really means the boss. So I really recommend that. And that system that you just described has helped people, you know, of color, women, members of marginalized communities. Like it's a known thing that people have to do, but they struggle with it. They're like, why do we have to make the extra effort to get credit? And it's like, I don't have a good answer. Like work sucks. I don't know what to tell you. What do you say? Work sucks. And I think the main mistake people make is wait until the meeting to try to get voice at work. They wait and they show up and then they try to gain voice in the moment. You can't do that. You have to be a little more conniving and actually plan ahead of who's going to echo your contribution. Pick people in the group and say, okay, when I say something, can you echo me? And this can help with bulldozers as well, people who talk over everyone. But there has to be an organization and a planning that goes into those meetings where you know credit is going to be granted, where you know there's a potential bulldozer. If you wait until the moment to try to solve the problem, then you're going to be in trouble. It's like doing a vote where you don't know the outcome when you're in a leader. You should never hold a vote if you don't know what the outcome of the vote's going to be before you walk into that room. And the same is true for us when it comes to getting voice or getting credit for ideas. You have to plan ahead to make sure people echo your contributions. Well, I just wonder if you can tell us the worst type of jerk at work. Like who just ranks as number one? Who is awful? Who is that? Number one is the gaslighter. And I think it's because they cause the most psychological damage. What these folks do is they lie with the intent of deceiving on a very big scale. They isolate people socially, and then they end up involving them in often unethical things that are very hard for them to pull out of. Lying and cheating and stealing and these kinds of behaviors where they're a small piece of the big puzzle. And the reason why they're so damaging is because they can corrode morale at work and it's very hard to pull them out. So people who are gaslighters tend to be very well situated within social networks. They have a lot of power. They're highly embedded at work. They're not just kind of respected and liked, but they're part of the context. They are the ones that create the context. And so firing them and getting rid of them is something that often doesn't happen. And the people who suffer this suffer for years and years after. It takes a really long time to get over this. So I'd say they are actually the most damaging for all of these reasons where the other ones can kind of be handled you know, bits and pieces with little small behaviors. Gaslighters really damage kind of the whole self. Well, you know, years ago, I met a professor by the name of Bob Sutton, right? World famous Bob Sutton, right? He's become like a de facto mentor to me. And he has been very adamant in his career that if you work in an organization with a gaslighter, with someone who's toxic, right? Whatever the definitions are, it's more likely that they're going to change you than you're going to fix the organization, right? And it's time for you to leave. So that has been on my mind in this conversation because, you know, now the common advice is if you're struggling at work and you need to work, practice professional detachment. But I think if you can, you quit. I don't know. Where do you fall on any of this? Yeah, I am starting to think that more and more. In fact, I want to write my next book on how to quit because Bob is right. So the workplace will change you more than you are going to change the workplace. And he has great examples of people in power where everyone says, I'm going to fight this, I'm going to fight this, I'm going to fight this. And then they wake up and they've become that. It is very wise for you to think that organizational structure, culture is more likely to change the individual than an individual is likely to change the culture or even to 
detach from that culture. And in fact, the detachment isn't a good strategy because it will impede your progress at work. It will actually make it really hard for you to form social connections and networks. You won't be embedded in the way that you should be. It's like being detached in a marriage. Could you technically stay married with someone you're detached from? Sure. Is that the best strategy? Probably not. The more I think about this, the more I take a Bob Sutton approach to this, that at some point you have to pull away. Well, I like the flow of the conversation because in dealing with jerks at work, you know, at what point do we deal with them? And at what point do we hope we defeat them? Or at what point do they defeat us, right? So that's kind of where I'm thinking with the conversation. So what are your thoughts on that? What's the normal progression here? Is it possible to defeat a jerk at work? I think it is, but I think you have to have a couple things on your side. So first, you have to have motivation to change. So if when confronting that person or confronting your boss about that person, there's a real resistance to change, to altering their behavior, you're not going to get anywhere. So we know from the science of goal pursuit that if you're not committed to the goal, the goal is never going to happen. So you have to have someone who's actually willing to recognize that change and then act on it. The second is there needs to be institutional structure to support you. It can't just be one person who cares because that person can leave. They can take off and take another job. If there isn't a system in place of people to actually create change and, you know, make these things happen, those two things are done. And I say to people, you know, once you have no locus of control and once you have no predictability at work, those two psychological states are critical just for your well-being, you know, and your productivity. Once those are gone, that's when you need to think it's time to bounce. <laughs> you know, it's time to look for a new job. So can you give us an example from the book of people who've worked for jerks or worked with jerks and the situation has improved? I'll give myself as an example. <laughs> I've been a jerk many times, but I'll talk about myself as a victim in one of these and maybe as the jerk in another. So I worked with someone who was very much a conniving bulldozer. You know, in academia, we do job searches like once every 10 years. We had one of these. He tried to bulldoze the process by going behind the scenes and questioning the way in which we made the decision. So smart bulldozers will do this. They'll say, no one really felt comfortable speaking up. We didn't know what we were voting on. Going to the people in power and questioning process is the best way to override a group decision. And he did this. But I had learned from the past that his behavior was very predictable. I knew he didn't like the outcome. I knew he was going to go do this. So I learned in the next meeting to, you know, just take very good notes to get a bunch of people on my side to say exactly what had happened and to do votes by documentation instead of by hand. Those three things together made it impossible for him to bulldoze us again. He was shamed at his submission and he didn't try it. So it's all about like learning to predict people's behavior from their past. You know, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior and then altering how you're then going to respond to that often by aligning yourself with other people in the room so that it's not just one voice, there's a consensus behind it. So those little things actually prevented him from doing it again. You know, I got bulldozed once, but I learned my lesson. I put these small steps in place. I didn't get bulldozed again. And I think that's critical. I've also been the bulldozer, not quite so conniving, but annoying, you know, loud, trying to override everyone. I learned that lesson just by paying attention to the kinds of feedback I was getting. And it's never direct. No one ever tells you, you suck. <laughs> you know, nobody likes you here. But my neighbor, one of my good friends whose office was next to me, started crying because she hated the space I had put her in during a move. And to me, I had to look at that and think of it as a red flag. Not, okay, well, she has emotion regulation issues, but what am I doing that's so bad I've actually made somebody cry at work? So kind of reading those signs and then reevaluating my own behavior and then learning to ask for the right feedback so that I didn't become a jerk again. So I do think it's all about kind of making those small little tweaks to how you interact with people so that they can't do the same thing to you again that they've done in the past. Well, you know, I like your example of being a jerk because it's not like a moral scarlet A that you've put on yourself. Like it's a moment in time, right? You did something that wasn't terrific. You were behaving in a way that uh, wasn't great for anybody and you recognized it and you moved on. 
It's not a thing that haunted you forever. And I think that's an interesting way of looking at this because a lot of times when we experience a jerk at work, we think this person must be mean to animals. They torture squirrels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. like this is in every aspect of their lives. And a lot of times it's just this one little thing that they're doing or big thing, but it's like this one moment in time. Am I right about the jerk behavior here? Yeah, I think destigmatizing it and taking the scarlet letter off of it is really critical for us improving jerk behavior because when we're just pointing fingers, people's defenses go up. And we know from social neuroscience, I study psychophysiology, that once someone starts criticizing you, you can come up with a million defenses to protect your self-esteem. So there's this art to criticizing, but there's this also an art to sort of learning that you can screw up as well, and that's okay. It's not the end of the world. Most of us can improve these things. And I tried to go with jerk behaviors that are a little bit ambiguous that all of us should be able to see ourselves in and feel a little bit uncomfortable hearing about because we can kind of resonate. It resonates with us what some of these jerks look like. So I do think that kind of removing that stigma is really important. And leaders who are open about their own work jerkery are the most well-liked. You know, the ones that are like, I screwed up and I was a jerk at work. People really like that because it shows they can grow and, and they have some kind of appreciation for their own behaviors. Well, I have one final question and that is this. If somebody tells me I'm a jerk at work, how do I know that they're right? Or how do I know that they might be the jerk, right? How do I figure this out? Because I think so many times the jerk tries to make other people feel like they've done something wrong. So how do we navigate this minefield here? Yeah, and I do think there are cases where people get accused of being a jerk, like a micromanager, where the person needs to be micromanaged because they've messed up so many times at work. So, you know, I'm all about asking for feedback broadly, frequently, and after specific behaviors. So if one person complains about you, fine, but you want to know how widespread the problem is. Ask other individuals who work with you if they have similar issues. And when you ask for that feedback, don't say, am I a jerk? How do you feel about me? Ask about the very specific things you did that make them think you're a jerk. Did I give you enough turnaround time on that project? Was it too much turnaround time? You know, these kinds of specific things, you'll get more honest answers. People lie when they give upward feedback. So don't ask people to tell you how they feel about you. You won't get an honest answer. So if you want to know if you are the jerk or they're the jerk, ask broadly, ask frequently, and ask very specifically about your behaviors. Well, I learned a lot about being a jerk and now I'm super paranoid about all my behavior. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay. Um, I like myself though. So we're going to start there. You know, Tessa, I really enjoyed the conversation. If people want to learn more about you, your work, your research, your book, what's the best place for them to go? Go to TessaWestAuthor.com. So you can find all my media stuff, the quizzes that are in the back of my book. Are you a jerk at work? You can take it, get immediate feedback. There's links to my book as well. So that's the best place to go. Amazing. Well, I don't believe that you are a jerk at work. You were really lovely to speak with today. And Tessa, thanks again for being a guest on today's show. Thank you so much. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Punk Rock HR. We are proudly underwritten by the Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head on over to thestarconspiracy.com. Punk Rock HR is produced and edited by RepCap with special help from Michael Thibodeau and Devin McGrath. For more information, show notes, links, and resources, head on over to punkrockhr.com. Now that's all for today, and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR. Punk Rock HR.